Welcome to St. Mark's. It's so good to see you here this morning. Our scripture lesson is this passage from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. And the title of the sermon is A Sermon for the Sleepy. A Sermon for the Sleepy. I know that doesn't really apply to anybody here, right? Today's one of those scripture passages that if you're going to understand it in all its fullness, and even then I'm not quite sure we'll ever be able to understand it in all its fullness, but if you really want a chance at understanding this scripture, I think you have to go back just a little bit before the passage of scripture that we've heard read today in order to understand what may be going on in this text that I'll be preaching from this morning. If you go back just a little bit before this, in fact, immediately before this in Luke's Gospel, you're going to discover that Jesus has already turned His face toward Jerusalem. Jesus is aware that He is going to the Holy Land to die. And in fact, Jesus has even warned the disciples in the passage of Scripture that's just before the one that we heard read today. And Jesus has said to them that I am going to suffer, that I am going to be rejected, and that I am going to be crucified. And the warning from Jesus didn't stop there. Jesus goes on to say to the disciples that if you want to follow me, then you must pick up your own cross of suffering. Uh, that you must deny yourselves and you must jump along behind me and go on this journey that I must make to Jerusalem. And we get this clear sense that, that even though Jesus has said these things to them, that the disciples remain confused. They remain clueless. They really don't understand what it is that Jesus is asking them to do. And, and the reason why I believe that the disciples were clueless, the reason why I believe that the disciples were confused, that they did not understand, is not only because of what is said in Luke's Gospel, but also because of what's not said in Luke's Gospel. And I want to pick up on what's not said first, because everything that I just told you about, Jesus saying that He had to suffer and be rejected and be crucified, Jesus saying that if you want to follow Me, you must pick up your cross and deny yourself and follow Me. All of that stuff was said right before our passage of Scripture today. And so our Scripture today opened up with Luke saying that it had been about eight days. And apparently, if, if between those eight days of when Jesus talking about suffering and rejection and crucifixion and picking up your own cross and denying yourself, the disciples had not said a word. If they did say a word, then Luke doesn't account for it here in his gospel. But there's no sense in which the disciples said, Jesus, we're with you. Or, or, Jesus, we completely understand what you're going through. Or, Jesus, wherever you go, 
will go to. There is absolutely no indication in Luke's Gospel between what Jesus had just told them and what happens in our passage of Scripture today that the disciples had had any conversation. And I want to suggest to you that maybe that's because they were confused. Maybe that's because they were clueless. Maybe that's because they didn't understand. Well, you might say, Tommy, you're reading too much into the text. There's... You're drawing a conclusion that really you can't draw from that. So, let's focus on what is said in the Gospel of Luke. And see if that gives us some insight into the confusion, into the cluelessness, into the lack of understanding of these disciples. It is right after our passage of Scripture today, still in chapter 9, that Jesus for a second time predicts His death, predicts rejection, predicts suffering. And in that second prediction, Luke decides to give us an editorial comment. Luke says that the disciples still could not grasp who Jesus was and what Jesus was about. They could not perceive it. In fact, Luke says that they're afraid to even talk to Jesus about what is happening. It is clear then in Luke's mind that these disciples were clueless. They were confused. They lacked understanding. And if that's not enough for you to believe their cluelessness, then think about something else that Luke tells us about. Jesus goes on and on again talking about the importance of sacrifice, the importance of humility. And just in a few chapters, we're going to see two of the three disciples that are with Jesus on the mountain when He's transfigured, arguing about who's the greatest about who's going to be able to sit at the right hand of Jesus in His messianic kingdom. They've heard all of this talk about being humble. They've heard all of this talk about sacrificing themselves. And yet now they're arguing about which one is the best. They're full of pride. These disciples are clueless. They don't understand. And even though Luke himself doesn't talk about it in his Gospel, the other Gospels even describe the third disciple that's on the mountain with Jesus when he's transfigured, Peter. And how Jesus is teaching them what Messiahship in his way of thinking and in God's way of thinking is. And then Peter rebukes Jesus. And Jesus has to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because you don't know what you're talking about. So it's important for us to see that, that, that these disciples lack understanding, that they're confused and they're co clueless. And it had to be frustrating to Jesus. And, and I find myself wondering, even though it's not described in any of the Gospels, I find myself wondering, might Jesus in this moment have been tempted by Satan just like he'd been tempted by Satan in the wilderness after his baptism. When he's got all of these people that he's called to be his closest disciples, his very best and brightest students, and they still don't get it. They're still confused and they're still clueless. You have to wonder if in the back of his mind, Jesus hears the voice of Satan saying, you know what? 
These hand-picked disciples of yours, these boys that you thought would be the best and the brightest and able to receive the Word that you have for them and able to go out into the community and, and share what you came to share, well, they're just not getting it. Uh, they just, maybe you're not as good a teacher as you think you are, Jesus. Uh, maybe, maybe you should just focus instead of this kingdom of God business that you're talking about so much, why don't you establish your earthly kingdom? And if you establish an earthly kingdom, maybe then will these confused, clueless disciples begin to embrace, embrace and believe what you're saying. I say all of that because I think that that might be the clue as to why the transfiguration takes place in the first place. I, it's, it's just a hunch, but maybe the reason why the transfiguration took place is because God looked down from heaven on what was happening below on earth, and God realized that the disciples were still clueless and still confused, and they did not understand and maybe God even saw that, that maybe those seeds of doubt or, or worry might be entering into Jesus' mind. Maybe God realized that Jesus was not finding the encouragement that He needed to keep doing what He was sent to do, to keep going where He was sent to go, to keep saying what He was sent to say. And maybe God said, well, if nobody on earth will encourage you, Jesus then I'll send someone from heaven down to earth who will encourage you to keep doing what you're doing, to keep saying what you're saying, to keep going where you're going. And so He sends Moses and Elijah. Now, the Word of God back in those days, the, the, their holy canon, their Scripture, was basically the Law and the Prophets. And so, whenever you read about uh, the Bible, the quote-unquote Bible in those days, it was oftentimes referred to as the Law and the Prophets. And so, why not send from heaven down to earth to encourage Jesus, to encourage the disciples who were with Jesus, and to encourage all of us, Moses, the one who was given the law by God and took the law and communicated it to the people below, and Elijah, one of the greatest prophets to ever walk the earth. It's as if God was reassuring Jesus and reassuring the disciples and reassuring all of us that what Jesus was doing, that what Jesus was saying, and that where Jesus was going was a fulfillment of God's plan all along. It was a fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It was a way of encouraging Jesus to keep doing what you're doing and it was a way to help the disciples to begin to break free from the confusion and the cluelessness that they were experiencing. As I read this Scripture, though, I have just a few questions that, that I spent more than a little bit of time thinking about this past week. The first question is, how could you be asleep or at the point of sleep 
when you're witnessing what those three disciples witnessed on that mountain that day. How in the world could you be asleep? I don't understand it. How could they have almost missed God's glory because they're drowsy? And see, some translations say that they'd actually been asleep. Other translations of Scripture say that they were just at the point of sleep. Uh, but to see these three, Jesus, Elijah, Moses, in dazzling white, other gospel accounts say that, that, that they, their faces shone like lightning. Now, lightning is one of the most powerful forces uh, on earth. Like one bolt of lightning has as much as one trillion watts of electricity. How in the world could you possibly go to sleep? During something like that. And then I think about how you and I have experienced some of the things that we've experienced. How we have, have been surrounded by God's glory and yet we've missed it. We've missed it because we were drowsy. We've missed it because we were sleeping. We've missed it because we weren't paying attention. The second question that I have as I read this text is, how did Peter even recognize Moses and Elijah? You remember last week I told you that I was sitting in lunch in Nashville a few weeks ago and I just happened to look beside me and I recognized Jordan Ta'amu, a former Ole Miss quarterback, sitting at the table right beside me. You know how I recognized Jordan Ta'amu? I recognized him because I'd seen him do videos. I've actually met him before. I've seen him in practice with my own two eyes, live in person. I've read stories about him, seen pictures about him. Uh, and, and, you know, since I preached on him last week, he was drafted in the first round of the USFL. Y'all notice I take credit for that. Number two quarterback. Uh, the number one quarterback was also a former Ole Miss quarterback. Just saying. Not quite good enough to make it to the NFL, but we can play in the USFL. But how did I recognize Jordan Tommy? I'd seen him with my own eyes. I'd seen pictures of him. I'd read stories about him. Well, how does Peter know who Moses and Elijah was? It wasn't like there were posters up at the Holy Land bus depot. It wasn't like um, that, that there was newspapers or, or online services where that he could go. How in the world did Peter recognize them? I don't know. It's a question that I can't wait to ask him when I get to the other side of eternity. How did you know that it was Moses and Elijah? But what we are told is that he did recognize that it was Moses and Elijah. It was a mountaintop experience. Once he was able to wake up enough to see the glory of God, he did not want that moment to end. And so he proposed that they just build these three dwelling places so that it wouldn't have to end. They could just stay in the midst of this mountaintop experience forever. And yet the mountaintop experience didn't last. And maybe the reason why uh, Jesus does this, mount, this uh, transfiguration on the mountain is because Jesus wants us to know that sometimes the glory of God is fleeting to us. Sometimes when we're so amazed by what God is doing, it doesn't last for very long. 
And sometimes after you've experienced a mountaintop experience, you, you end up having to still go back down into the sorrows of the valley below. But what I find most interesting about this passage is why when the voice of God boomed from the heavens, why didn't the voice of God say, look at him? Instead, the voice of God said, listen to him. If, if it's going to be more about your ears than your eyes, then why in the world go through all of this visual dazzling display of faces turning white and shining like lightning? Why in the world would Jesus be told, why would the disciples be told, listen to him instead of look at him? I think it's because God realizes that Jesus was ultimately going to ascend back into heaven. And they wouldn't be able to just look at Him every day with their own two eyes. I think it's because God knew that mountaintop experiences never last for very long and that you end up having to go back into the valley and so you may not be able to see Jesus as clearly in some of those times as you can in others. And so Jesus, uh, God wanted Him to know that when you can't see Jesus, when you're not sure of God's glory, you can still listen to Jesus. Finally, the question that I have about this text is, why did these disciples keep quiet? Why wouldn't they go and tell everybody around them about how they had experienced the glory of God in such a marvelous way? And I didn't get to even try to answer that question because I felt in my spirit another question forming. And that question was, Tommy, why don't you tell others? Why have you remained silent? Oh yes, on Sunday mornings I get to get up and talk about this stuff every single week. But Monday through Saturday, God presents opportunities into my path and I'm ashamed to admit the number of times that I either am asleep to it or I either recognize it as an opportunity and I still choose to remain silent. You see, I think our transfiguration story is really meant to encourage us that Jesus did do what He was supposed to do. He did say what He was supposed to say. He did go where He was supposed to go. And God wants to encourage us to say what we're supposed to say. To go where we're supposed to go. And to do what we're supposed to do I think it's God's way of reminding us that you and I can fall asleep to the glory of God that is all around us and it's an invitation for us to wake up and to sense the glory of God in our midst it's God's way of saying that we're going to have mountaintop experiences where we feel especially close to Jesus. But those experiences won't last. And there will be moments in our lives where we find it difficult to see Jesus or to sense His glory. And in those moments, 
God wants us to just keep listening to Jesus. To hear what He has to say. And it's a reminder to us that we are often silent. We've experienced the glory of God. We've been touched by Jesus. And yet we don't say anything to anyone about it. And our testimony about God's glory might be what ushers someone else into the glory of God. So this is a sermon for the sleepy. It's a sermon that invites us to wake up to the glory of God that's all around us. It's a sermon that's meant to encourage us in our faith and in our discipleship and in our faith sharing. And it's a story about not being silent. Sharing the good news of God's love with others.